Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the history of the cards, episode 13, the second exile. Before we start, I have an exciting announcement. The podcast now have its own website. It's at hxofcartspodcast.wordpress.com. In addition to posting the episodes there, I'm maintaining an active blog as a sort of opinion pieces regarding all things cops. I also started using the podcast Twitter feed more actively, so make sure to check them out. As I said in my introduction episode, this project is my labor of love toward preserving and enhancing the Coptic culture and identity. Using Twitter and the website is the natural extension of that mission. Anyway, Last week, we ended with Constantine banishment of St. Athanasius in 335 AD, but crucially, he did not formally remove him from his seat or appoint a replacement, thereby keeping things from getting out of hand in Egypt, where St. Athanasius was a popular figure among the population and the monks. Before going any further, I would like to take a small detour and a trip to Ethiopia, where just prior to the first exile of St. Athanasius, the Coptic Church put down some roots and built a link that would be extremely important in medieval Egypt. Ethiopia was connected to Egypt via the maritime trading route to India. Basically, a ship departs from India, hugs the Arabian Peninsula, then goes through a narrow strait between the Arabian Peninsula and Ethiopia. The ships then unload in one of Egypt's Red Sea ports, such as Bernice, travels as a caravan through the well-maintained desert Roman roads to the Nile, then the cargo gets loaded into ship again on the Nile, where it travels to Alexandria and onward to the rest of the empire via the Mediterranean. Depending on the geopolitical situation, the Arabian Peninsula and Ethiopia were either middlemen, a stop during the route for additional trading, or a launch point for piracy. A Jewish community settled there as well, and there is a biblical account of an Ethiopian eunuch being converted in the book of Acts. So in time, Christianity was making small progress, but the big breakthrough happened around 330 AD was the involvement of St. Athanasius. The story goes that a Christian philosopher whose commercial aspiration from Tyre and Lebanon set out in a trip to reach India. With him, he took two young boys whom he was a guardian of. Then at a stop in Ethiopia, they were attacked and the young boys enslaved. Eventually, they were sold to the local king of the area. The boys grew up 
and became part of the king's close circle of advisors. And when he died, they became part of the ruling council, watching over a young king who did not yet come of age. Odysseus and Formentius, as they were named, promoted Christianity, and giving their position, they were successful. Odysseus eventually went back to Tyre and became a priest, but Formentius went to St. Athanasius in Egypt and asked for a bishop to be ordained for Eusebia to organize the church. St. Athanasius duly ordained Formentius himself as the bishop of Eusebia and established Eusebia as part of the responsibilities of the Patriarch of Alexandria. Odysseus, the other boy who became a priest in Tyre, told the story to Rufinius, a Christian historian who lived in the end of the 4th century, who then wrote it down for us as an important historical record. Asiopia was part of the Church of Alexandria until the 20th century, where the church in Asiopia became its own independent body. The story is important as the Christian kingdom in Asiopia would be geopolitically significant as we move on in our narrative. Anyway, our trip to Eusebia is over for now, and time to head back to Constantinople and the events post the Council of Tyre in 335 AD, where, in addition to the exile of St. Athanasius, Arius was readmitted to the church. Constantine then invited Arius to come to his court, either to ensure that his views are compatible with the creed agreed on in the Council of Nicaea, or it was simply the machination of Eusebius of Nicomedia to show the world that the Arian view are now in fashion and accepted by the emperor. The invite was protested by Alexander, the bishop of Constantinople, but his protests were in vain, and arrangements were made to receive Arius as a victorious hero in a march from the imperial palace to the newly built magnificent church of the apostles, on a Sunday where everyone who matters in Constantinople would be in a church for liturgy. The ceremony would then end in Arius receiving communion, possibly from the bishop himself, giving a clear message to everyone in attendance of the newly held high esteem of Arius. But alas, fate, or divine justice, as the ancient historian saw it, intervened on that day before the event was planned. To quote one of them, It was then Saturday and Arius was expecting to assemble with the church on the day following. But divine retribution overtook his daring criminalities. For going out of the imperial palace, attended by a crowd of Eusebian partisans like guards, he paraded proudly through the midst of the city, attracting the notice of all the people. As he approached the place called Constantine's Forum, a terror arising for the remorse of conscience seized Arius, and was the terror a violent relaxation of the bowels. He therefore inquired whether there was a convenient place near, and being directed to the back of Constantine's form, he hastened there. Soon after, a fitness came over him, and together with the evacuations, his bowel protruded, followed by a copious hemorrhage and the descent of the small intestines. Moreover, portions of his spleen and liver were brought off in the effusion of blood, so that he almost immediately died. Ouch. Not a good way to go. Arius was probably around 80 by the time, so, which is pretty good by the 4th century standards.
So Arius dies in 336 AD, and the Persians, who have been quiet for a while now, start making moves in Christian Armenia. Constantine then sends a letter to the Persian king, informing him that he sees himself as the protector of all Christians, and therefore attacks on Christian Armenia would be retaliated against. The Persians sent delegates to Constantinople to try to avert war, but they were rebuffed by Constantine, who was about 65 years old by this point, but in excellent physical and mental health, and preparation for war starts by both sides. But it wasn't meant to be, not yet anyway. Constantine, shortly after Easter of 337 AD, became sick, and by the Feast of the Pentecost, 50 days after, he dies, getting baptized at the last few days of his life by Eusebius of Nicomedia. Constantine left us an impressive legacy and a long list of achievement. He deserves many of the admiration and titles he receives, such as equal to the apostles, the great, and Saint Constantine. But he was by no means perfect. In addition to the incident with Crispus and Fasta, he transformed the Roman army to be mostly made of non-Roman barbarian troops, which some would argue led to the fall of the western half of the empire. He also let politics and theology intermingle freely. By his political skills and charisma, he was able to keep things somewhat reasonable during his reign. But things would quickly get out of hand for the emperors who will follow him, and theological divisions would plague the empire for the next few centuries. Lastly, he failed to see that his sons are just like him in their dislike and sharing power, only a lot more impatient and a lot less politically savvy. His succession plan consisted of dividing the empire into four parts, with Persia, which he was planning to conquer, the fifths. As such, he created four Caesars, his three sons and his half-brother, was a fifth newly created position, the king of Mesopotamia and Persia, only a title at this point, as no conquests have taken place. Then, he expected all of them to get along with the rest of their extended family and govern peacefully and live happily ever after. Sorry, Constantine, I have to break it to you. The only people who live happily ever after stay as far away as possible from the trapping of absolute power. Constantine's second son, Constantius, was defending the empire borders from Persian raids when he heard that his father had died. As the closest son to Constantinople, he rushed there, where he buried his father in a lavish ceremony in the Church of the Apostles, and shortly afterward, just to make sure everyone is on the same page on who is the new emperor, he ordered the massacre of the entire Constantinian extended family. Sharing with his brothers was tolerable for now, but extended family had to go. Transition of powers are tricky at first, especially if you're not planning to share. So quickly, the numbers of Caesars fell from 5 to 3. The only survivors from the massacre was a teenager named Gallus, who was sick and supposedly dying at the time, and a child named Julian, who was supposedly saved by a Christian bishop. Julian will grow up and come back to our story, 
So keep him in the back of your mind as the child who survived the massacre of his entire family. The oldest son, Constantine II, was in Trier, Germany, with St. Athanasius in his court. The youngest, Constance, was not legally an adult yet, so he was under the guardianship of Constantine II. The three sons eventually met in Central Europe to divide the empire. Constantine II took the west, Constance the central provinces and Italy, and Constatius became the emperor of Egypt and the east. While they agreed to divide the empire, the relationship was shaky to say the least. Constatius was an Aryan Christian, but Constantine II and Constance were not. Constantine II assumed, as the guardian of Constance, he would rule his brother provinces, but Constance saw himself as an equal partner. And above all, all three, at some point, will cover each other's territory. So long-lasting peace was not in the horizon. In June 337 AD, shortly before they officially met and divided the empire, an imperial edict restored all exiled bishops to their sees. The edict probably originated from Tyre, with the influence of St. Athanasius, but it was published as a joint action from all the Caesars, and no one at the time objected to the goodwill gesture. St. Athanasius then left Tyre immediately to return to Alexandria, but rather than jump on a ship and be there in two to three weeks, he took a long road with many stops. Most people in his place would have returned to Alexandria, kept a low profile while the political situation worked itself out, and tried not to get stuck between the imperial brothers. But they did not call him Athanasius Contra Mundum for nothing. St. Athanasius took the opportunity in his way through Europe to restore exiled Orthodox bishops, ordain Orthodox clergy, and build a relationship with European bishops who shared his Orthodox views. He also met with Constantius, who was the emperor in charge of Egypt, and as far as we can tell, the meeting went fine, and St. Athanasius was allowed to continue on his trip. Constantius either did not realize how much resistance St. Athanasius would present to the Aryan cause, or was worried about the Persian conflict that he inherited from his father, and did not want to get involved in theological issues at this moment. Either way, then Athanasius eventually made it to Constantinople, where Alexander, the Orthodox bishop who held the see for 23 years, had just died, and a contest between an Orthodox priest named Paul and an elder Arian deacon was taking place. Then Athanasius supported Paul, and eventually Paul was elected as the bishop of Constantinople. The bishop of Constantinople was an important battleground for the Arians and the election of Paul was very problematic and could not be accepted. As such, Constantius, who was not in Constantinople at the time of the election, immediately exiled Paul when he returned, and replaced him by none other than Eusebius of Nicomedia, a highly controversial choice, as the transfer of bishops were uncanonical and frowned upon in the church circles. Now, don't forget about Paul. Bol is important, he will show up again in our narrative. But perhaps at this moment, Eusebius and Constantius realized the danger of San Athanasius, and a plan was being formulated to depose him as well. 
For his part, St. Athanasius continued through Syria and Palestine, where he restored the Orthodox Bishop of Gaza to his seat and generally supported the elevation of Orthodox clergy. Finally, he made it to Alexandria in the end of November 337 AD, six months after the edict to restore the exiled bishops was published. In those six months, he managed to enrage Eusebius and Constantius and become public enemy number one for the Arians. Within a month of his entry, Eusebius organized a council in Antioch where the emperor was staying in account of his war with Persia, and using the same old charges, the council of Antioch deposed St. Athanasius and replaced him by a man named Pistus. St. Athanasius responded by organizing his own council in Alexandria, which cleared him of all wrongdoing. And in a brilliant diplomatic move, not only the bishops of the Council of Alexandria defended St. Athanasius in a legal sense, but they also questioned the legitimacy of the councils that condemned him. The Council of Tauri was questionable because it was headed by a layman, and not a bishop, and the Council of Antioch was headed by Eusebius, who, in his uncanonical transfer to Constantinople, forfeited his position as a bishop. The audience in questioning the legitimacy of the council was not the emperor, who ordered them to take place in the first place and had a hand in choosing who heads the council, but the rest of the bishops of the empire and the monks in Egypt. In a way, they framed the conflict in the terms of theological legitimacy, the hedge against hostile imperial policy. And in another helpful move, they sent the finding of the Council of Alexandria to all three emperors knowing that Constantius may not want to publicly contradict his brother at this juncture. And their strategy worked. Constance replied by asking St. Athanasius for the Bible as a symbolic move of subverting him. And the Bishop of Rome, Pope Julius, convinced of the legitimacy of St. Athanasius and the illegitimacy of the councils that deposed him, took a hard line against Pistus, his replacement, and the ground that he was ordained as a priest by one of the three Arian bishops excommunicated in the Council of Nicaea. Thus, his ordination is now valid. So nothing came out of that Council of Antioch, and Pistus never went to Alexandria. Nonetheless, Constantius asked Athanasius to meet him and defend himself in person. At this point, it's around Easter 330 AD, and St. Athanasius writes down a beautiful fistal letter that perfectly sums up his feeling about the constant attacks from his enemies. I'm going to read a part of it, as it expresses the foundation of the theological resistance of the cops that shaped them over the century. St. Athanasius writes, O beloved friends, if from affliction comes comfort, from labors rest, from sickness health, from death immorality, then it is not seemly to be distressed about what comes upon mankind for a brief period. Then it is not right to be downcast because of the tribulations which occur. Then it is not proper to be afraid of the gang who attack Christ conspire against true belief. On the contrary, we should please God all the more in such circumstances, and consider such things as testing and practice for the virtuous life. For how can anyone display patience except after labors and sorrows? Or how can anyone be tested for fortitude without an assault from his enemies? 
For the enemy draws nearer afflictions and trials and labors, doing everything in his endeavor to overthrow us. But so long as the man who is in Christ enters into battle against the foes and sets patience against anger, humility against arrogance, virtue against wickedness, he wins the victory and exclaims, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Perhaps realizing that St. Athanasius has won this battle, or preferring to wait for a more convenient time to exile him, nothing comes out of the meeting with Constantius, and St. Athanasius returns to a hero welcome in Alexandria. On his return, St. Anthony leaves his desert cell and comes to Alexandria for three days, where he denounced Arians, converted pagans, and cast out demons. By this point, St. Athanasius was extremely popular among the populace and the monks in Egypt, and have effectively won the hearts and minds of the Egyptians. But, if this battle is won, the war is still going. Eusebius have learned from his mistakes, and tries again. First, get a prefect of Egypt that can impose your will, and does not let St. Athanasius convene councils or conduct diplomatic missions freely. Second, convene a second council with new charges. Third, find a replacement for St. Athanasius that will not generate opposition. So naturally, by the end of 330 AD, a new prefect was assigned in Egypt. Then at early 339 AD, a new council of Antioch was convened, with the new charge that the edict that returned Athanasius was not valid, as it was from a civil government he was deposed by a council of bishops, and therefore can only be returned by another council of bishops. The council then picked a man named Gregory, who was close to the prefect, as their cooperation would be necessary to depose St. Athanasius. By March 339 AD, Gregory the Cappadocian was in Alexandria, and an imperial order to arrest St. Athanasius was out. St. Athanasius quietly slips out of Alexandria, and was on his way out of Egypt by April 339 AD. Thus, St. Athanasius was exiled for the second time. This time, he chose the destination, and it was none other than Rome, where his friend Pope Julius was there, and fell under the territory of Constance, away from the imperial orders of Constantius. The transition of power in Alexandria, as you can imagine, was not very peaceful, Gregory was a native of Cappadocia, but he had been educated in Alexandria. Nonetheless, he was painted as a bishop sent from the imperial palace, a heretical foreigner. And while he was not officially excommunicated for Arianism in the Council of Nicaea, the man he appointed as his secretary has been excommunicated by Pope Alexander himself, and was well known in Alexandria as an Arian. Thus, Gregory's appointment was the signal for popular riots in Alexandria. St. Athanasius wrote in one of his letters how the prefect responded to the riots by violence. Churches were burned, monks were beaten, and women were scourged. To make matters worse, Gregory's entry happened to be on Good Friday, and as a result of being insulted by the population, the prefect rounded up the leading Christians in the city and publicly whipped 34 of them. Talk about bad optics. In a way, the installment of Gregory and the resulting riots was a foreshadow of a long struggle 
between the will of the emperor in Constantinople and the will of the Copts in Egypt over the Bishop of Alexandria. And with that, we are going to end this week's episode. San Asenesius is in exile in Rome, and his situation can be summed up in the words of St. Paul the Apostle. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Before we go, I have a request. The podcast thus far have been much more successful than I have ever imagined. And as a result, I'm really working hard to increase visibility. So would you please give the podcast a review on iTunes? It would help a lot. Thank you, and farewell, and until next week.